This evening we're concluding our overview of the Old Testament book titled Ezra. With this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Ezra chapter 10. And as you make your way to the 10th chapter of Ezra, well, I just want to take a moment to remind you that this book is a historic record of the events that transpired between the day when the children of Israel were set free from their Babylonian captivity, and, and it uh, con- uh, concludes with the day when the, when the priest named Ezra finally arrived in Jerusalem and discovered that the first wave of exiles, they were already living in sin, and then we see the book wrapping up with how he addressed all of that. And so in order to place all of this onto a proper timeline, it'll help you to remember that it was 530. BC when King Cyrus freed the people of Israel from their captivity. And then uh, the the book uh, continues until 457 BC when Ezra finally arrived only to discover that there were many Israelites who were already committing the sin of interfaith marriages. Now, just to be clear, it'll help you to know here that an interfaith marriage, well, this is a marital union between two people who are following two different religious faiths. And as we saw in our study last week, well, the Lord God of Israel prohibited the people of promise from engaging in marital relations with the people of the pagan nations. One reason why? Well, it's very, very simple. It's because these marriages would always result in the further rebellion as the people of God began to embrace the idols of their unbelieving spouse. So, so the believer who takes that first step of sin and marries an unbeliever will then just slip further into sin as they continue to try to please their unbelieving spouse. And listen, this was not only true for the children of Israel during the days of the Old Covenant, but this is also true for every born-again believer here in the church age. That's right, the Christian who is married to an unbeliever will face a greater temptation to walk away from the Lord as they attempt to please their unbelieving spouse. And with that being the case... Well, it's my hope that our study tonight will help every disciple to to develop biblical convictions about marriage, about divorce, even about remarriage. And, And while it's my prayer that every single Christian here tonight will wait for a believing spouse... Well, it's also my prayer that those who are already married, well, I, I pray that you would remember that we've been called to keep the Lord first in our lives, uh, and, and we need to be following his instructions and even in our marital relationship. Well, with all this as, as our focus, I want to consider the counsel that Ezra provided to the people of Israel here in the final chapter of this book. And so if you would look with me here at Ezra chapter 10, I want to begin reading there at verse 1. Here we read, now while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women and children gathered to him from Israel for the people wept very bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, we have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land, yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now here in the beginning of this chapter, we find Ezra. He's bowed down before the house of God, and he's prayerfully confessing the sins of Israel with bitter tears. We read about that prayer in our study last week. And as he wept over the wicked sins of Israel, uh, there was a large assembly that began to gather around him, and they too began to weep. They too began to weep as they realized how far they had fallen from the, the plan of God. It was at that point in time when a man named 
Shechaniah, he stepped forward and after sorrowfully, uh, sorrowfully you know, confessing the sins of the people, he, he went on to rejoice. He rejoiced in knowing that the arrival of Ezra was actually evidence that there was still hope for the people of God. The arrival of Ezra was evidence that there was still hope for the people of God. I like the way that the scholars who give us the New Living Translation rendered the words of Shechaniah. Uh, they put it like this, We have been unfaithful to our God, for we have married these pagan women of the land. But in spite of this, there is hope for Israel. Yeah, we're sinners. Yeah, yeah we've blown it. But despite the fact that, that we've gotten off course here, there's hope for Israel. The, that word hope was translated from the Hebrew word which was used in reference to the confident expectation that leads us to trust in God's grace. This is the confident expectation. It's not like, I hope so, but more of like, I know so. And in this, I hope. That hope is that confident expectation that leads us to trust in the grace of God by which sinners can be saved from the punishment that we deserve. And while it's true that we all deserve the punishment of the Lord, we can hope with great confidence in the grace of God, which is received by faith in Jesus Christ. As we consider this concept of hope, you know, Shechaniah here seems to be suggesting that the arrival of Ezra was evidence that the Lord wanted to restore those who were ready to repent. And I'm happy to inform you that Shechaniah was correct. That's exactly why the Lord sent Ezra to the promised land. The God of Israel sent a priest named Ezra to go and rebuke the Israelites so that they might repent of their sins, resulting in the restoration of reconciliation. You know, it's in similar fashion that the God of Israel has also sent us a priest, the high priest, Jesus Christ, to call us to repentance so that we might have this hope in the restoration of reconciliation. The Apostle Peter confirms this in 2 Peter chapter 3. There he declares, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. From this, we can see that the Lord doesn't want to just you know, punish us and force us to perish in the fires of hell. If that were his plan, he could have just wiped us all out years ago. If, if his desire was just to you know, punish us and, and, and force us into the fires of hell, that, I mean, he can do that on any day. But that's not what he wants. And so he's long-suffering toward us because it's, his desire for every sinner to repent and trust in Jesus so that we might receive the restoration of reconciliation that fills our hearts with hope. And that's good news. We have a gracious Savior who is long-suffering toward us despite the fact that we deserve punishment each and every day. And yet, he's long-suffering. And in this, we can have hope. Now, as we shift our focus back to the hope that Ezra brought to Israel, I want to spend some time considering uh, the fruits of repentance that are found here in our text today. And with this as our focus, let's pick up our study of Ezra chapter 10. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 3, here Shechaniah declares, Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. 
Now, here in these verses, we find this guy, Shechaniah, he's encouraging the Israelites to, to not only be repentant in their minds. Remember, repentance speaks of a change of mind. So he's saying, don't, don't just be repentant in your mind, but actually walk it out now. We need to bear the fruits of that mental change of mind. And so Shechaniah is encouraging the Israelites to, to make a new covenant with the Lord. That, that's his encouragement. It's time to make a new covenant with the Lord. And listen, that word covenant, it's found there in verse three. It's translated from a Hebrew word, which speaks of an alliance. It speaks of a pledge or a treaty between two parties. And it's also, also interesting to note here that the same Hebrew word was also used of the covenant that's made when a man and a woman present their marital vows before the Lord. Uh, for example, this is actually the same Hebrew word that the prophet Malachi used uh, in the second chapter of his book. It's there where Malachi declares, the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your marriage companion and your wife by covenant. That's right. Uh, the, the marriage companion that you have is your spouse by covenant. That's that same word. The marital relationship is based on the covenant that a man and a woman make with God as they present their marital vows to each other. And as we consider the word covenant in the context of the marital commitment, we must not fail to grasp the marital counsel that Shechaniah here is presenting. Notice with me again there in verse 3. Here again, he declares, now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to do what? To put away all these wives and those who have been born to them, according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Wow. Shechaniah here is encouraging the Israelites to make a new covenant with God by breaking the marital covenants that they mistakenly made with their unbelieving wives. The reason why is because the covenant that they made when they married their pagan wives actually broke the covenant that they previously made with the Lord. They made a covenant with the Lord that they would, they would follow the law, and according to the law, they weren't allowed to marry unbelieving wives. So they actually broke their covenant with the Lord when they made a covenant with their unbelieving spouse. Therefore, encourage them, time to get a divorce. Wow. Seems pretty extreme. And as we consider this counsel, I can't help but to remember what the Lord said here in Malachi chapter 2. It's verse 16, where the Lord declares, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart and do not be unfaithful to your wife. From this, we can see that God hates divorce. That's what he says as plainly as day. I hate divorce. God hates divorce. And with that being the case, we should take a moment to ask, why did Shechaniah encourage divorce as, as this correct step in restoring their covenant with the Lord? Not only that, but we should also ask here, did, did Ezra agree that this drastic measure of divorce was the right step? Well, with these questions in mind, let's consider Ezra's response to the words of Shechaniah. It's found here in the final chapter of this book. Look with me here at Ezra chapter 10. I want to pick up our study beginning at verse 5, where we learn that Ezra arose and made the leaders of the priests, the Levites, 
And all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. So they swore an oath. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Elishib. And when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem. And that whoever would not come within three days, according to the instructions of the leaders and elders, all his property would be confiscated. And he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month. And on the 20th of the month, and all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of heavy rain. Then Ezra, the priest, stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now, therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the pagan wives. Here in these verses, we find Ezra, he's not only agreeing with the advice of Shechaniah, but he also instructed the Israelites who were guilty of this transgression that they needed to confess their sins and then proceed to divorce their pagan wives. As we consider this counsel, I have no doubt that there are many of us who are wondering, you know, you know was Ezra's command actually in conflict with the Lord's hatred of divorce? How can both of these things be reconciled? How, how can we square the idea that God hates divorce, but then sends this priest to go and encourages people to get divorces? Well, with these questions in mind, we should consider a conversation that Jesus had with a group of Pharisees. And with this as the focus, if you would hold your place here in the book of Ezra, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. You see, it's here in the 19th chapter of Matthew's gospel account where we find the Pharisees here. They're testing Jesus with a trap question about divorce. And, and they do this by asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? With this question of mine, I want to pick up the conversation, which is found here in Matthew chapter 19. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 4. Here Jesus responds with his own question. He asks, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Now, here in these verses, we find the Lord, he's helping the Pharisees to realize that the marital covenant was designed to be a lifelong commitment. It's a lifelong commitment based on a covenant that a man and a woman make together with God. 
Therefore, you know, according to Jesus, you know, even in the case of adultery, uh, the Lord even encourages us to be ready to forgive the repentant spouse for the sake of restoration and reconciliation. At the same time, though, if the cheating spouse remains unrepentant, uh, the Lord does, in fact, allow for divorce in the case of adultery. At the same time, though, we must not fail to notice here that the Lord doesn't uh, recognize the subsequent marriages of the believer who divorces their spouse without having biblical grounds for the divorce. If a believer divorces their spouse for a reason apart from sexual immorality, then they no longer have grounds for remarriage. I'll prove my point. Let's take another look here at Matthew chapter 19. I want to focus your attention at verse 9. Here Jesus declares, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Now here in this verse, we find the Lord, he's helping the Pharisees to understand that the person who divorces their spouse without having biblical grounds, which in this case is sexual immorality, or in other words, adultery. If, if a person divorces their spouse apart from adultery and then moves on to marry another person, that person is actually engaging in adultery. Now, now this is a bit confusing, confusing here. And, and just to be clear, listen, the word adultery... Well, it's used in reference to the sexual sin that occurs whenever a married person cheats on their spouse. The married person who cheats on their spouse is committing adultery. Now, with that being the case, we should take a moment to ask, how can a person be guilty of adultery if they're married to the person they're committing adultery with? Because that's what Jesus is saying. If you divorce your spouse for any reason other than sexual morality, adultery, and you marry another person, then you're guilty of adultery in that relationship. How? If you're married to them, are you committing adultery with them? Well, in order to answer this question, we must realize that the Lord doesn't recognize an invalid divorce. You might have a piece of paper that says you're divorced, but God doesn't recognize it. And listen, if the Lord refuses to recognize a person's divorce, well, then the person who decides to divorce is still married to the person they divorced in the eyes of the Lord. Think about it. If God rejects the reason for the divorce, then he most certainly won't recognize their so-called right for remarriage. And if he doesn't recognize the right for their remarriage, then a marriage certificate from a state doesn't make a hill of beans in heaven. If he doesn't recognize the right for remarriage, then I don't care who, you know, what judge bangs a gavel or what pastor says you're married. The, the Lord would then identify the subsequent marriage as nothing more than an adulterous relationship because the person who gets remarried, their divorce was never recognized in the eyes of God. That being the case, it only stands to reason that the only way to repent of this type of adultery is to dissolve the sinful relationship through a state-based divorce. But wait a minute. Doesn't God hate divorce? Well, technically, yes, of course he does. So long as there was actually grounds for the marital covenant in the first place. 
If there were no grounds for the, the marriage in the first place, then, the, then God doesn't recognize the marriage. Therefore, divorce would actually be the, the, the actual step of fruit, the, the fruit of repentance from that adulterous relationship. To better grasp my point, let's just, let's just change the, the people in the marriage. Because right, right, right now we're thinking about a man and a woman and these sorts of things. Right? Well, let's take a moment to shift gears by considering the issue of same-sex marriage. You probably know it was back in 2015 when the Supreme Court of the United States decided that every state is now required to perform the marriages of same-sex couples and to recognize the marriages of same-sex couples performed in other states. Uh, and, and what they failed to realize is that, you know, they, they might be the Supreme Court, but all that means at Taco Bell's, it comes with sour cream and tomatoes. That's all. There's still a higher court. There is a higher court than the Supreme Court. And I guarantee you on this one, the Supreme Court's decision does not line up with the supremest court. God is the one who created marriage and he's already defined marriage as the union of one biological man with one biological woman. That's what we saw there in Matthew chapter 19. With that being the case, we can be certain that the Lord doesn't recognize the state-based marriage certificates of the same-sex couples who are currently engaging in sexual immorality. And they can hold up that marriage certificate all day long, and God's saying, I don't recognize this as marriage. And to that, we'd be like, that's right. God doesn't recognize that. The state says it's a marriage, but God says, no. No. Because a legitimate marriage is between one biological man and one biological woman. And while it's true that God hates the divorce of those who have entered into a legitimate legitimate marital covenant, it's also true that he demands the divorce of those who have no grounds for their marriage. And so if a same-sex couple that, that has been married in the eyes of the state you know, decides that they need to repent and get right with the Lord, what's one of the fruits of that repentance? You got to dissolve that relationship. And therefore, you need to get that divorce in the eyes of the state. So does God hate all divorce? I'd, I'd say no. He, he would probably celebrate many divorces. There are times when a state-based divorce is actually a necessary step for those who want to get right with God. Proof of my point can be found in the fact that Ezra the priest was ordering the divorce of every Israelite who transgressed the command of God. Remember, the Lord had forbidden them from marrying the unrepentant women of the pagan nations. Therefore, all those marriages weren't real marriages, not in the eyes of God. And so Ezra's saying, Time to dissolve what God doesn't even recognize. Those who broke their covenant with the Lord with these marital transgressions were commanded to repent of those unbiblical relationships and true repentance, the changing of the mind, would result in the action of separating, divorcing from these relationships. Now with all this in mind, let's turn back to Ezra chapter 10. I want to consider how this council ended up impacting the entire nation of Israel. If you would, let's pick up our study beginning at verse 12. Here Ezra writes, Then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, Yes, as you have said, so we must do. But there are many people. It is the season for heavy rain. 
and we are not able to stand outside, nor is this the work of one or two days, for there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. Please let the leaders of our entire assembly stand and let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at the appointed times together with the elders and judges of their cities until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. Only Jonathan and the son of Asael and Jaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this. Meshulam and Shebatiah, the Levite, gave them support. Then the descendants of the captivity did so. And Ezra, the priest, with certain heads of the father's households, were set apart by the father's households, each of them by name. And they sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. Uh, By the first day of the first month, they finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives. Now here in these verses, we find the Israelites, uh, you know, there appears to be some disagreement, some debate over this, but at the end of the day, they agreed to abide by this difficult decision. One reason why? Well, it's found there at the end of verse 14, where where we learn there that uh, they were hoping to avoid the full cup of God's fierce wrath. I'm guessing they were already receiving some level of punishment at this period of time, and they were hoping that they would escape the full cup of God's fierce wrath, and so they knew they needed to repent. They knew they were guilty before God, and they, need, they, they knew they needed to come correct so that they could receive the restoration of reconciliation. At the same time, they also realized here that uh, this was going to take some time. This was no overnight you know, endeavor. One reason why is because there were just so many people who were guilty of this transgression. Another reason why it's the the rainy season. You know, and and not to be confused with purple rain, this was heavy rain. And it was difficult to travel in in this time of year. And and there there was no convention center that was covered and, you know, they were all sitting outside. And so they just wanted to push it back to, to when it was a drier climate. Furthermore, I can imagine that there were those who had foreign wives, but maybe who had been converted and became God-fearing Gentiles, maybe. It's my guess that there were, uh, there were a great deal of details to work through as each man had to be interviewed and, and you know, the, the, the circumstances needed to be examined so that a just decision could be made. So this wasn't just a, a, a flip of the switch, you know, this wasn't an overnight decision. There was an investigation as each man who took on a Gentile wife, had to be investigated. And as the leader set out to determine which marriages were legitimate and which ones weren't, you know, the, uh, the, those who you know, had married pagan wives and they were still unbelievers, the, they were called to divorce their pagan spouse in order to avoid further punishment. Now, as we consider the counsel that Ezra gave to those who had married these pagan women, I have no doubt that the believers who are even now married to an unbelieving spouse might read this chapter and start wondering if the Lord expects them to file for divorce. And if this is something that you're struggling with tonight, then I encourage you to consider what Paul wrote to the Christians at the church in Corinth. You can read the whole chapter later for homework, but it's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in the middle of verse 12. There Paul declares, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. 
Now here in these verses we find Paul addressing the new converts there in Corinth. And it seems obvious to me that the Christians there in Corinth uh, had already been married prior to their conversion to Christ. Therefore, you know, they're probably wondering, maybe coming across a text like the one we're reading tonight, uh, maybe they're wondering, you know, are they supposed to separate themselves from their unbelieving spouse? And in response to this, Paul encourages them, remain married. If your unbelieving spouse is willing to stay with you, then you should stay with them. And he says, because the husband or the, uh, the unbelieving husband or wife is sanctified by the wife or the husband. And, and in this way, I, I'm led to believe that, you know, Paul is saying, hey, you, you know, if you want to lead your unbelieving spouse to the Lord, stay with them. This is the best chance they have for placing their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul also assured them that if their unbelieving spouse decided to divorce them, well, then the, the covenant is broken and they're free to remarry. You know, this this gets into the, the secondary uh, reason for divorce. The first, of course, is the person who wants to file for divorce uh, must, you know, uh, you know, must have evidence that, that their spouse has engaged in adultery. And, and if they have and, and there's, there's not repentance on the part of the other person and they want to file for divorce, then, you know, the other person actually broke the covenant through the adultery. So that's the first reason. The second reason is what we call abandonment. If the other spouse leaves and refuses to remain married, well, then the believing spouse is no longer bound to that marriage. The covenant was broken by the one who abandoned them. Listen, if you're a Christian who, is, uh, who has been abandoned and, and you're wondering if you have grounds for remarriage, the answer is yes, you do. If you're a Christian who is married to an unbeliever, you know, and you're wondering if you should go ahead and divorce that unbeliever, well, according to Paul here, you should remain in the marriage so that you can lead your spouse to the Lord. And if they decide to divorce you, then you're free from the marital covenant. With all this in mind, I like the way that Paul sums it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's verse 27 where he declares, Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Very simple. Are you married? Don't waste your time trying to figure out how to get a divorce. Are you unmarried? Quit worrying about where your spouse is at. God will bring them in his time. The married Christian who is seeking divorce or the single Christian who is seeking a spouse, both are failing to seek the Lord for the wisdom they need to simply serve our Savior in the way that they should. And it's sad to say that many believers have backslidden simply because they don't know how to just be content in their current relationship with the Lord. And I'm here to tell you, single Christian, if you're not content being single, you're not going to be content being married. Because the issue is with contentment, not with whether you have someone or not. And, it, and if you're not content being married, Christian, you're not going to be content being single either. Because the issue isn't your marital status. The issue is in your heart. That you don't know how to simply be content in your relationship with Christ Jesus. And why would, you know, singles, why would God want to bring a content person alongside of you the discontent person, and say, yeah, I'm going I'm to hook these two up. 
No. Learn how to be content. And I guarantee that as you finally learn how to be content, then the Lord will say, okay, now you're ready. But if you're not married, don't seek a spouse. And if you are married, quit trying to get divorced. With all this in mind, I want to consider the final verses of this incredible book. If you would look with me here at Ezra chapter 10 for some of the most exciting passages that you will ever read in the Bible. Look with me there, beginning at verse 18. Here Ezra writes, And among the sons of the priests who had taken pagan wives, the following were found of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brothers, Maaseah, Eleazar, Jerob, Gedaliah. And they gave their promise that they would put away their wives. And being guilty, they presented a ram of the flock as their trespass offering. Also, the sons of Immer, Hanani, Zebediah, of the sons of Haram, Maaseah, Elijah, Shemaiah, Jehiel, and Uzziah, of the sons of Pashur, Elianiah, Maaseah, Ishmael, Nathaniel, Josabad, and Elisa. Also of the Levites, Josabad, Shemai, Kaliah, the same is Kalaita, just in case you were confused about that. Pethahiah, Judah, and Eliezer. Also of the singers, Eliashib, and of the gatekeepers, Shalom, Talam, and Uri. And of uh, others of Israel, the sons of Parash, Ramaiah, Jeziah, Malchiah, Maizhaman, Eliezer, Malchijah, and Benaiah. Of the sons of Elam, Mataniah, Zechariah, Jahiel, Abdi, uh, Jeremoth, and Eliah. Of the sons of Zatu, Elioniah, Elishab, uh, Mataniah, Jeremoth, Zabad, and Azizah. Of the sons of Bibai, uh, Jehonan, Hananiah, Zabi, and Athle. Of the sons of Bani, Mashulam, Maluk, Adaiah, Jashub, Sheel, and Ramoth. Of the sons of Pahath Moab, Adna, uh, Shalom, uh, Benaiah, Masiah, Mataniah, Bazalel, Benui, and Manasseh. And of the sons of Haram, Eliezer, Ishhijah, Malkijah, Shemaiah, and Shimeon, Benjamin, Maluk, and Shemariah, of the sons of Hashem, Mataniah, Matatha, uh, Zabad, Eliphelet, Jeremiah, uh, Manasseh, uh, Manasseh, and uh, Shemai, and of the sons of Bani, Maadai, Amram, Uel, Benaiah, Bedaiah, Chelua, uh, Vaniah, Meramoth, Elishab, Mataniah, Matanai, Jaasai, Bani, Benui, Shemai, Shalemiah, Nathan, Adaiah, Machnadabai, <laughs> Sharai, uh, Azrael, uh, Shalemiah, Shemariah, Shalom, Amariah, and Joseph, of the sons of Nebo, Jaleel, uh, Matathiah, Zabed, Zabana, Jadai, Joel, and Benaiah. All these had taken pagan wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. After three-month investigation, the leaders of Israel decided to compile this list. So, So they sat down with all the men who had taken wives from the pagan nations, and they set up to determine, you know, which one of them may have become believers which one of them were were still pagans. And they compiled this list so that we would all know. And so that I would have to sit through 
and read name by name. All of, and listen, if you're wondering if I pronounce these names correctly, I encourage you uh, for your own homework, uh, actually go do uh, an investigation with a, uh, you know, maybe a Strong's Concordance and, and you know, write down the, the proper pronunciation of each of these names. Send it to me in an email. I love those kinds of emails. But uh, I'll, I'll get right to it. <laughs> But these are the names of the men who were found guilty of marrying pagan wives. And it's sad to say uh, that in verse 44, we learned that many of them had already born children who would then be affected by the sinful decisions of their fathers as, as, as the father was uh, you know, required to put away this wife. I'll remind you, though, that the Lord had been perfectly clear when he commanded the Israelites to abstain from these interfaith relations. He had told them before they even arrived in the land of promise, don't marry the, the women in the pagan nations. And yet all the men on this list decided to disobey the Lord by taking pagan wives for themselves, and this despite the fact that their disobedience would end up having a negative effect on their kids. You think they were thinking, I wonder how my kids will be affected by this, by this marriage. Nope. I have no doubt that this is a reality that many parents are even struggling with here tonight as they wrestle with the difficulties of making parental decisions. Listen, parental decisions are already hard enough when your spouse is a believer. Now imagine the difficulty when you're married to a spouse who's following a false god. We aren't told the reason for why these men decided you know, to go and marry women from the pagan nations. I'm sure they all had their very rational, legitimate reasons. Some might have believed that they, well, they could convert the, the, their spouse to Judaism. You know, so they went engaged in some flirty fishing, you know, where they thought, you know, I'll, they'll marry me and then they'll see my love for the Lord and then they'll convert, right? Yeah, that's the way it works. Others were probably just filled with lust for, you know, the woman they married. Then there were those who were probably dissatisfied with the selection there in Israel. You know, they're looking around and all the Israeli women are just like, you know, the pagan gals are a lot cuter. Not real happy with the selection here in Israel, so let's go check out the Philistines and the Jebusites and the rest of them. Regardless of the reason, though, listen, doesn't matter the reason. It was a sinful decision. And it ended up hurting everyone in Israel, including their kids. Knowing how these interfaith marriages end up hurting people, hurting you know, the, the couple, hurting the kids, hurting the families, hurting the community of faith. Well, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that the Lord not only commanded the Israelites to abstain from these interfaith marriages, but he presented similar instructions for the born-again believer. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. There Paul declares, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, and as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. 
I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, as we consider what Paul is saying here, there should be no doubt in our minds that the Lord wants every uh, single Christian to realize that those who enter into a marital covenant with an unbeliever is unequally yoked. The, the Christian is yoked with God and then yoked in marriage to this unbeliever, but that unbeliever is not yoked together to God. And therefore, they are unequally yoked. And so God says, come out from among them. Don't, don't invest yourself in these sorts of relationships. And, and if you're someone who engages in dating and you date unbelievers, listen, well, where does that, where does that lead you? If, if you're dating to go find your, your spouse and you're dating unbelievers, well, you're entertaining this, this, this relationship which will leave you unequally yoked. And what's truly tragic is there's a lot of Christians who don't look deep before they leap. Well, they said they're a Christian. Oh, is that what they said? Well, they said they go to church. Really? Where do they serve? I don't know. How long are they? They're not Christian. I don't know. Have you heard their testimony? No. But they're a Christian. Okay. So often it's just wishful thinking. You found someone that you're attracted to and you asked them, are you a Christian? And they went, yep. And then they got married and then they found out, oh, wait, no, they're not. And now we have kids. Look deep before you leap. Make sure they actually have a relationship with the Lord before you take that step. Listen, regardless of the reason for why a believer would end up married to an unbeliever, the fact still remains the same that every interfaith marriage will leave the Christian torn between the desire to please the Lord and the desire to please their unbelieving spouse. And I would guarantee that nine times out of ten, what the unbelieving spouse wants and what the Lord wants are two totally different things. And so now you've got to figure out who you're going to please. With all that being the case, I encourage every single Christian in closing to abstain from being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. You know, there, there are some Christians who are married to an unbeliever because they became a Christian after marriage. And so they're just they're in the middle of a marriage with an unbeliever and talk to him. Find out, you know, how, how difficult it is for a believer to be married to an unbeliever. And the Lord would encourage you by saying, Don't be unequally yoked. Don't enter into this with a marital covenant. At the same time, I also encourage every married married Christian here tonight to remember that that the Lord is the one who has to lead us. Husband, wife, we are to be equally yoked to the Lord who is guiding our marriage. And so wives, if you're trying to you know, direct the marriage, husbands, if you're trying to direct the marriage, and, and it's always fighting over who's gonna, whose opinion is going to win, why don't you just try letting the Lord win? Why don't you guys seek the Lord together and allow him to lead your relationship? Because that's the best way for it to work. You're equally yoked for a reason, and that reason is to let the Lord lead. 
The Lord is the one who's able to lead us on the best path for maintaining a righteous relationship. And so we should allow him to lead us. Finally, regardless of whether we're married or single, I encourage every Christian to follow in the footsteps of Ezra by becoming those believers who are dedicating their temple to the service of our Savior. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we are the temple of God. He says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Ezra went to go and help dedicate this temple and and keep the people on course with the will of God and, and we should follow in his footsteps by becoming the same believers who are dedicating our temple every day. Let's become those believers who are dedicating our temple to the service of our Savior every day. And as we do, well, then like Ezra, we can help others to become those committed Christians who are also living their lives for the glory of God. Let's pray.